All right, for anybody that might not know, we are continuing in a three-week series that I've called The Prodigal Son. And it, of course, takes place in that wonderful story that many of us are familiar with called The Prodigal Son. Last week, we saw a special part of that story when the lost son returned home to his father. And that was really important for us to look at because it displayed, I believe, what it means to experience the love of a father. And how God is our heavenly father who always embraces us regardless of the wrongdoing that we've done and the pains that we've suffered through. Well, this week we are going to be looking at a different portion of this story. I don't know about you guys, but I'm sure if I were to raise my hand and ask this question, everybody's hand would go up, so I'll just do it anyways. Anybody here like watching movies? All right. So anybody ever experience a film where there's a film after the film? That means that when the film ends, the credits go on, and if you wait just long enough, you might see another film. Austin, you know what I'm talking about? What movie have you seen that does that? Maybe some Marvel movies? Yeah. This is like that. If I were to tell, if I were to have just finished up the series last week and the son came home and the father embraced him, I could have said, the end. But there's more to this story. And in fact, I believe that the ending portion of this story actually might be more important than the whole story itself. And I might even argue that this ending portion of the story is actually the greater point that Jesus is trying to make for those that are listening. Now, don't get me wrong, both portions of this message that we've been going through for the last couple of weeks still matter. But it would be easy to think that the story is over. And in fact, I think when we actually look at the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son, depending on what your Bible says there, we usually think of just about the lost son who went away and squandered his wealth. And we rarely think about the story of the elder brother. But we are going to be looking at the story of the elder brother. So if you would, hopefully you've already turned there, but turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, and we're going to be reading a few verses today. So I'm going to be reading uh, 23 onward. So let's go ahead and read 23 through 28. So follow along as I read aloud. I'll start at 22, actually. Uh, but the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put, him, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Speaking right now to who? The son who came back and apologized and repented to his father. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a, a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now this is the story after the story that we need to really listen to here. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Now listen closely to verse 28 here because this is very important. 
the older brother became angry and refused to go in. I'll say that once more. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. Now, I need to be honest with you, church. I first read this story for myself with my own eyes, reading through the Bible around the age of 15. I had heard, of course, of this story before, just growing up in church, but I remember reading it for the first time by myself, and I was around 15 years old, and I remember reading this portion of the story and thinking, yeah, that's how I would feel. I would feel exactly like that. Why is this father allowing his wealth to be squandered once again? I mean, doesn't he realize that his son squandered everything and ruined some of the inheritance for his elder brother, and now he's doing it again by just allowing this younger son to have the fine clothes and for a ring to be put around his finger and for the best calf to be slaughtered and eaten and for this celebration to occur? It just did not make sense to me. And I related so much with this, other, this elder brother's idea of this isn't right. And in some ways, I could say that many of us, if we were in a similar situation, would say things like this, you're enabling bad behavior right now, Dad. <laughs> you need to teach this son a lesson. Don't you realize that if you continue to do this, they're just going to do it again because you're allowing this to happen. Maybe you've had a conversation like this before with somebody else. I think I've had that conversation before. So then the question is, well, why would Jesus include this in this gospel message? Why would he make a story that assaults our ears, that causes us to go, this just doesn't add up? You see... If you didn't know, a lot of the headings on your Bibles, you know, for instance, this heading right here might say the parable of the lost son. Just by a show of hands, does yours say the parable of the lost son in your Bible? So a few of you, some of you probably have a Bible where it says the parable of the, uh, the prodigal son, right? Show of hands for anybody that sees it that way. Okay, so most of your Bibles say one of those two things. That, that heading was added later on. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. It just helps us figure out where we are in the Bible. But I have an opinion. I could be wrong, but I have an opinion. And my opinion is that this story could also be called the parable of the lost sons, plural. And what I mean by that is because I believe that this story does not just have one lost son. That in fact there are two lost sons on this story, but oftentimes we just focus on the one who was reckless in their behavior and we forget to see that there is another lost son in this story that Jesus is trying to show us here. And I, I, I know that that sounds maybe a little bit different from what you've heard before, but track with me. Why is Jesus even including this portion in his parable? Because if you think about it, he could have ended the story with this whole idea of, and then we celebrate it because once my son was lost, but now he's found, right? 
but he decides to include this other section in. So why don't we go back and allow scripture to speak for itself, and why don't we go back to chapter 15 and read verse 1 and 2 again? Because I think this actually helps us understand why this parable is really the parable, in my opinion, of the lost sons and not just the lost son. So here, read, read with me as, uh, listen, follow along as I read aloud. Chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. So really quick here, tax collectors... Good or bad? Bad. Still good or bad? <laughs> For most of us, still bad, right? So this is like a universal concept. Doesn't matter if you're a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago. Tax collectors, bad, right? Sinners, bad. So Jesus is hanging out with who? He's hanging out with some ruffians, some people that are not your typical crowd of people that you like to keep as far as company is concerned. So he's hanging out with people that are kind of the down and outs, right? And in verse 2, it says this, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the laws muttered, right? Muttering is usually not a good thing. And it says, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Okay, so obviously the Pharisees, just much, much like us, think tax collectors bad too, right? <laughs> but what's really the problem here? The problem here is, is that the Pharisees have issue with Jesus relating, encouraging, and trying to minister to people that the Pharisees don't believe are good people. You see, if you didn't know this, the Pharisees at this time were considered the law keepers of God. They were much like what I do today. They were much like the pastors, the rabbis of their time, who were charged with loving on the people, instructing the people about God, and helping teach the people God's law. So... For the most part, the Pharisees were the ones who knew what? Their scriptures really well. And in fact, I would say that oftentimes when we look at the Pharisees, we think to ourselves, oh, those are the real villains of the story. Those are the ones that if they weren't around, Jesus would have never been crucified. And there's a level of truth to that right? The Pharisees oftentimes resist Jesus's ministry. And if it weren't for the Pharisees, Jesus probably would have had a lot less problems and definitely a lot less arguments. Because the Pharisees were oftentimes butting head with Jesus. But if you really think about it, the Pharisees are not very different than you and me. And that is a very hard thing to say and to realize because we oftentimes do not want to identify with the bad guys in the story, right? We want to think of ourselves as the heroes of the story. But think about it. We need to realize that the Pharisees were at the very least trying to do what? They were trying to teach the people how to follow God's law. Why? Because they believed that if they could get the whole entire people of Israel to come back to Jesus, well, not to Jesus yet, to come back to God, that what would happen? That God would bless them again. 
Because if you read your Old Testament, what do you see? You see cycles, ups and downs of the people following the God and then doing what? Disobeying God. Following God and then disobeying God. You see God blessing Israel and then God withholding his blessings from Israel. So the Pharisees very much believed that in order for Israel to gain its prominence once again, that they needed to do what? Follow God again. And the best way to follow God is to listen to his word. So they were really trying to get people to follow the Lord. But oftentimes, what happens when you do that? Well, we all know the saying that you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. And what do we know about that saying? Well, you can't force people to do things that they don't want to do. Although there are certain desserts out there I would do a lot for. <laughs> but really, the idea is, is that you can't force somebody to do something that they don't want to do. But here's the problem, church. If I were to just tell you the Ten Commandments, or if I were to just tell you the laws of God, or if I were to just tell you things, rules and rules and rules and rules and rules, let me, let me just make a fake person right here, okay? If I were to take a 13-year-old boy and tell him to follow a list of five rules, do you think he's going to follow those rules? No, the very fact that I said there's rules meant he's going to do the opposite, right? In fact, I probably have a better chance of making up the reverse rules for, so that I can get him to follow the right one. <laughs> Why? Because our hearts are rebellious because of sin. So our hearts have now become rebellious by nature. So the Pharisees, in very, in very many ways, were fighting a losing battle. But they held on to that battle as if they could have forced God's redemption. As if they could have forced people's ability to be able to do good things. So what did they do? They took God's law and they added to it. They added to it. They made up so many different rules and so many different interpretations of God's law that it almost became like the biggest burden in the world to carry to just try to figure it out. There was rules upon rules upon rules. And this is why if you've ever read any of the Gospels, you see Jesus getting in trouble all the time by who? The Pharisees, because he's not following what? Their version of how they think God's law should be followed. And Jesus goes, well, hey, this is not what I intended when I wrote these things. So the Pharisees are what kind of people? They're the rule followers. They're the ones that want to do everything right that feel a little maybe self-righteous in life, that allow themselves to feel proud because maybe they had the right kind of upbringing and the right kind of opportunities and the right kind of know-how to allow society to continue to lift them up in prominence and for them to, in some ways, 
seem respectable and dignified. Okay. Let's read a little bit more then about the elder son. Verse 28 again. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Hmm. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, notice that he didn't say, when my brother, that's like when two parents are arguing about their kids. Well, your child, right? He's your child too. <laughs> this son of yours <laughs> squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you killed a fattened calf for him? Perhaps. Who is Jesus trying to help in this parable? Who is Jesus trying to minister to and allow them to see themselves in this parable? Do you think he's trying to help uh, the, the sinners and the tax collectors see themselves in the older brother? Who? The Pharisees. The Pharisees are who? the older brother. They are the ones who live righteously. They are the ones who could follow the laws and the rules and orient their lives in such a way that they feel proud over the actions that they do. Now, church, this is where it gets a little hard and maybe a little uncomfortable for all of us. Because we don't like to see ourselves this way. But if it was true 2,000 years ago, it's true today. That that same spirit, that spirit of the Pharisee, or that spirit of self-righteousness, or that spirit of legalism, still exists today. We've seen it inside the church. You've seen it outside the church. You've seen it when somebody pokes at you, about things that you are doing wrong, and you've seen it as well when you've poked at somebody else for not following the rules the way that you think that they should. And don't get me wrong, it's good to have a society with rules, but we must not never forget that both of these people are lost. Even though the son, the first son, the younger son, was lost and physically left his father's home for a foreign land and lived, what, disconnected from the father. The other son did what? He lived with the father, but remained disconnected to him all the same. And in fact, I would say that there was in some ways worse. Why? Because he grew to resent and hate his father for not doing what he felt like he deserved. You see, we operate this way a lot, right? Where we feel like if we do a certain amount of things right, then God 
we deserve something from God, right? Or we deserve something from somebody else. But without realizing it, what we can end up doing for ourselves is we can end up finding out that we are the same as the elder brother. Church, I will be honest with you. In my family, I relate more to the older brother. Yes, there is times in my life where I run and I flee and I want to have my fun too. But at the same time, personality-wise, I am more of the elder brother. And we have all experienced that within our own churches, right? You know of that, you've seen that, you've heard that, you've felt that. But what does Jesus think about these things? Is Jesus for this kind of sentiment? Because you see, the elder brother is just as lost. He is just as broken. And what's interesting about this story is we know that the younger brother repents. But we never know if the older brother repents. And I think that in very many ways is something that Jesus is trying to tell us. Because so often when we live like the older brother, we can almost be a harder egg to crack. Why? Because we have so many walls of self-righteous defense. And you know what I mean, because when somebody tries to tell you something wrong, what do you do? You, you are quick to think of everything that you've done right. And if anything, you're quick to see the wrong in somebody else. This is why this parable is even better than you thought. Because this parable speaks to the humanity that is within all of us. The desire to run, but also the desire to be self-righteous. Both are evil in the eyes of God, and both cause us to do what? To lack a relationship with the Heavenly Father. Listen to how the father tries to encourage the son after the elder son rebukes his father for his actions. Verse 31. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. Why does he say that? Because the son has not been living with the inheritance and the love and the blessing of the father. He's lived with self-righteous resistance and that has put up a hardened shell in his life that has not allowed him to receive from the father. You see, when you become a legalistic person, whether you realize it or not, you don't receive from the Father. It's like, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but there are some people that I meet that become Christians, and I'm so excited for their, their, their new faith, but for whatever reason, it's like they cling on to judgment and they lose grace. They lose mercy. They forget those things were, are what allowed them to come to faith in the first place. And instead, they cling on to the judgment of God and the righteousness that they're pursuing and 
don't get me wrong, those are good things, but listen to this because it's the big idea for today and it comes straight out of the book of James. James was the half-brother of Jesus. So if you think somebody knew Jesus, it was probably James, right? Jesus' biological brother. And he said these words, mercy triumphs over judgment. That is at the heart of God. Mercy triumphs over judgment, church. Don't get me wrong, judgment is important, and there will be a day where judgment will come. And in fact, in this Advent series, we're going to talk about that honestly, because we need to talk about those things. But at the heart of God, mercy triumphs over judgment. If judgment triumphed over mercy, there would be no gospel. There would be no baptism. There would be no death and resurrection. Why? Because in our judgment, do we deserve those things? No. But God withholds judgment in order to give us mercy. And he not only does that, but what does he do? He gives us his grace. Mercy is withholding something that we deserve, right? If I deserve punishment, if I deserve correction for my wrongdoings, being able to be given mercy is what? Someone withholding the punishment that I deserve. Being given grace is being able to receive something I didn't deserve. Some people call grace unmerited favor. That sounds kind of fancy for our day but I actually think that's a, a phenomenal definition. And God wants to give us both his mercy and his grace. And you see, he wanted his older son to experience and receive his younger brother in that same way. But the older brother was, was doing what? He was living in the judgment of God and not in the mercy of God. He was living in the judgment of his, of, of his own self-righteousness and not the mercy of his father. So when he saw his brother come back, he couldn't even refer to him as a brother to his own father. That is the heart of the Pharisees. That is the heart that some of us sometimes struggle with or at least are tempted to struggle with. In church, may this story be an encouragement to you, especially with Thanksgiving coming upon us in this Advent season, that we need to be people of mercy to the world, amen? That we need to be the kind of people that do not get locked in to our self-righteousness. I struggle with this. I struggle with this because, you know, I, I know you guys think that that my preaching is always really easy to digest and <laughs> I never say anything controversial on the stage. <laughs> we live in a time where we do need to speak truth to the world. We live in a time where it's very obvious that there's a contrast between what happens here and what we read in here and what we see out there. That's obvious, church. But we still are called to be people of mercy and grace. And there are plenty of people who think that judgment triumphs over mercy. But let God's word affirm you and remind you that mercy triumphs over judgment. 
Church, I'm not saying that you don't speak the truth. I'm not saying that you don't have disagreements and that you don't judge something by its fruits because you should. But be grace to somebody else. Live out mercy for somebody else. Hey, kids in the room, I'll give you a secret. Maybe ask your mom to show you mercy, huh? (laughs) Next time you do something wrong. Be that to somebody else. Because you need it just as much as anybody else does. You know, a sad thing that happens, and this is a real sad thing. This really does happen. So what I'm going to say right now is important. Is somewhere along the way, we forget who we were before Christ. You know, if you've been a Christian for over 10 years, I'm going to be now a Christian for almost 20 years. Next year will be my 20th anniversary of coming to faith, or close to it. It's easy in those decades to somehow forget who you were before. And you just somehow wake up one day and you think, I've always been like this. (laughs) I've always been pretty well-behaved and mild-mannered and et cetera, et cetera, and all these, you know, pats on the back. Don't forget what Jesus did for you. Don't forget the grace and the mercy and the love that he showered on you when you became a Christian and that he still showers on you every single day. Because if you do, what will end up happening is you will become like the Pharisee. And you will become like the older brother, living in his home, but having no relationship. And we don't want anybody coming to this church who is living in this home, but doesn't have a relationship with the Father. Amen? Mercy triumphs over judgment, church. And God is calling us to have a relationship with him. Whether we're the reckless younger brother or the self-righteous elder brother, we need to have a relationship with the Father. Let's pray.